Hello and welcome to the Vagabond Actors Podcast, where we discuss all things acting, craft, mindset, the business side, and pretty much everything in between. My name is Gary Condes, and I'm talking to you from London, and I'm joined by fellow actors, teachers, and coaches. My dynamic colleagues, they are Brian Casp, who is based in Prague. Hello, Brian. How are you doing this evening? Hey, Gary. I'm doing great. Good. That's a, re- that's a relaxed great. It's really good. I just had a really nice shower and I'm ready to go. Good man. That sounds and weird. Also- I might take that out. <laughs> <laughs> no, keep it in. You've had a relaxed shower and you're I've ready to go. I've had a relaxed go. shower and I'm ready to go. I'm ready to do the podcast. Just don't describe what you're wearing or not wearing, basically. Okay, I won't. I'll leave it to your imagination. <laughs> And as always, we have Andrea Helen, who's based in Mallorca, Spain. Hello, Andrea. Hello, guys. I'm happy to be here as always. And I'm now. not freshly showered, but I'm relaxed. <laughs> good. That's good to hear. Don't get too relaxed because we've got a really good episode. Yes. In- yes, we have. In this episode, we'll be talking to writer, director, producer, and basically all-round fantastic independent filmmaker, Marcus Marku. Hello, Marcus. Ooh. Hello, Gary. Hello, everybody. Thank you for having me on your show. Thanks for joining us and taking the time to join us. Now, there is a lot here. Marcus's debut feature, particularly, the unique thing about Papadopoulos and Sons, which we'll be talking about later, it was self distributed by Marcus himself into UK cinemas, its success on its opening weekend placed it among the top five self-distributed UK films in the past 15 years. So Mm. that's something I'm really interested in getting into and investigating. The film then went on to, after release, to be bought by the BBC and Netflix. So we welcome you with great pleasure and we look forward to chatting to you, Marcus. Well, thank you very much. I'm, uh, yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> now. But first. Yes, exactly. But first, and I'm going to include you in this, Marcus. Before we do, let's check in, as usual, with what we've been up to with regards to our creative endeavors. And of course, Marcus, I'm going to ask you too. So get your brain working and, okay. and, and think about what you've been up to. So, Brian, what have you been up to this week? Okay. Well, I can't talk much about the specifics of the shoot. Okay, but I'm on a, No, but I think, <laughs> thanks for that, Brian. So, no, exactly. so what has been quite interesting for me because I'm not usually away from home shooting for any length of time. So I kind of brought as much equipment as I could fit in my bag to do any potential self tape that I might have to do. And I also thought that I was going to have to quarantine in the hotel room for ten days when I left, and so I brought a whole bunch of protein bars and protein powders. And then when I got here, I was like, so what's the deal with the quarantine? And they said, oh, no, no, it's only three days. And I thought, well, why am I here for two weeks? I don't understand because I'm only shooting one day. But what was really interesting about kind of a quarantine is that I made a list of a lot of the projects that had been outstanding for me. So there were some scripts that I needed to work on. And hopefully I can go back to Prague with a lot of those projects ticked off my list. So that's been really good, actually. And in terms of projects and using time diligently, what is it that you're turning your hand to while you are waiting to get on set? Well, I have actually talked about it on the podcast about this film that I was doing around Christmas time that I wrote the treatment of, and then I was going to have various people read it. And then I did that. And then I said, I have to write another version. And that's just been hanging. It's only six pages long. I actually wrote a 15 page treatment and then I thought that's too long to ask anyone to read. I'm going to write a six page version of that. And that process has taken from Christmas time until now. And it really has taken me just 
buckling down to do it because the process of the writing is just crazy because it feels like I have it straight in my head. And then I sit down to write, you know, I'm typing away and I think that's not correct. That's not how I want it to sound. That's not what should be happening right now. I didn't set this up. You know, it's just crazy. So I'm trying to take it as an iterative process where I can do it. I'll do it wrong. The process of doing it wrong. I can go back and fix things and just kind of like slowly chip away at trying to get the form that I want. Because I'm really a big fan of this story that I'm working on. But I just, every time I sit down to write it, I think, well, this is terrible. And so I finally sat down and finished that six-page treatment while I was here in quarantine and sent it off to this a writer friend of mine named Nicole Galland, who was kind enough to be my cheerleader and supporter in the process. And she read it. And then we had a chat on Sunday about what she didn't understand and where there were gaps and holes. And I kind of talked through the ideas with her and she gave me suggestions about what I should focus on, how I can maybe go about improving it in the next iteration. So it's things like that that I'm working on. Great. Let's go to the sunny island of Mallorca. Andrea, what have you been up to? Well, let's see. Um, I'm planning another workshop here coming up soon, uh, an online workshop. So I've been working on that structure and looking for some material, you know, taking a look back at the workshop that I did recently. And I'm happy to say I got really great feedback on that. So I'm trying to take a look and see if we want to make any adjustments or play around with something new. So I'm, I'm in the stages of planning and I'm reading some things. And so it's been more of a solitary pursuit this last week since we've spoke last, but all is well. I'm looking forward to the teaching. Sometimes you got to go solitary. Yes. And it's just the right time because there's so much other activity around me at the moment. So it's better that I create some time for myself to just write and think and take notes balances me out a little bit. I went horseback riding um, yesterday for the first time in a while. And it was occurring to me how important it was to have really something just in a totally different direction, literally like to change up your rhythms. I mean, because so much of riding or my experience yesterday was focused on like trying to find literally like the count and the rhythm and think of it as a dance with the horse because it was quite a long time we were spending together. And I felt it was good to jog my brain into different patterns, you know, with this other living being and to switch things up and get out of my own thoughts in a way. Yeah. Sort of like what I think we try and achieve with yoga and other mindfulness pursuits is to get up out of our own damn way sometimes and listen to other rhythms. So I enjoyed that quite a bit, actually. I could say Great. that was, a, in a way, a creative pursuit. If I know for sure that any form of horse riding will certainly jog my rhythms in a different way. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be bouncing up and down like a crazy man. <laughs> Marcus, do you mind joining us and giving us a, a little rundown on what you've been up to creatively this week? You know, if you'd asked me this question in the last, you know, two or three years, I probably wouldn't have been able to say much. But I wrote a screenplay over the summer, which is just a two-hander. It's a husband and wife story. It's a feature film. And I sort of wrote it COVID-friendly, cheap to make, just two actors, 10 scenes and I've got the money to make it. I'm two weeks away from official pre-production. So mm. I'm in that pre-pre-production phase of building a crew, scouting locations, starting to talk about casting, having big conversations with the DOP about how it's going to be shot. And we want to go handheld and use an anamorphic lens, which is technical, I know, but these are really big considerations 
for how the film looks. And so I've been watching movies shot handheld anamorphic, one of which I watched yesterday called At Eternity's Gate, William Defoe movie. And that was shot all handheld with an anamorphic lens, which is kind of quite rare to do it that way. And so I've been doing all of that, having these conversations. And of course, at this stage, it's just all about budget and schedule. It's like, you know, we've got 11 shooting days to shoot a feature film, basically. But the good news is it's only two actors and 70% of the locations are outside, so they won't need a lighting setup. And therefore, it can be shot quickly. And handheld means you can shoot very quickly because you're not constrained by setting the whole thing up. So that has been my life, which sounds really exciting and creative. But honestly, if you'd asked me this in the last three or four years, I would never have been able to give such a an exciting answer as I have just now. <laughs> well, it, it takes three or four years to kind of gestate, right? <laughs> well, it, it takes that kind of time for me to save the money to make the movie. And, and, and I think is I'd been chasing bigger projects and what I'd been doing was trying to land the finance by chasing big name actors that would then trigger the finance to make the movie and then this summer I just went oh God just give that game up just write something that you can afford to make so I thought well I can only afford two actors in 10 days and a smallish crew and mostly outside in London the rule is you should never write to the budget but I did and it works. So it's exciting to be here because I've got very low expectations of what it can do because it's all my own money. I'm not having to satisfy an investor. I can make the film I want to make without being bullied by other people in terms of what it should be in order to be financial, commercial, all those sorts of things. Great. Well, maybe we'll get in a little bit more into that as we progress through the podcast and get into your journey and what you're up to and, and your work. So, Gary, what have you been up to? I think I've mentioned this before. I'm working on a couple of musicals and I'm working on an actor who's working on The Phantom of the Opera. Mm-hmm. So I'm working with him on a weekly basis before he starts rehearsals. And, you know, he just wanted to go deeper and work on it from an acting point of view rather than the musical standpoint and just go deeper with his character and just try and deepen himself, but also with the role. And there were some things that weren't firing and he wasn't finding the right answers to kind of try something different or sort of trigger him. And we were talking of objectives, obviously this classical thing, you know, what's the objective in a scene and stuff like that. And, and I just dropped in. I said, well, what's your life objective? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, what's your overarching drive through life? Because that can define you as a character and influence all the choices you make as a character. If you get an understanding of what that might be, or at least have a go at that and pinpoint that down. So this was kind of new to him. So this really triggered his creativity and crystallized the character for him and how he could connect to it. And all of a sudden, emotionally and physically, it became more embodied and gave rise to different behaviors because he's done this role before and he just wanted to try something different. So that was a nice little tool that got introduced to his work that just sparked something this idea of your life goal or your life objective or your overarching drive because you know when I work with actors there's obviously seen objectives and there's maybe the idea of the super objective that some people get hold of but this hierarchy of objectives life play seen objective coming down or going up depending which mm-hmm. way you look at it can be very useful i think that's brilliant gary i've never even thought of that as an idea but i find that instantly interesting that you could say to an actor what is your life goal and then for that to trigger something i mean that, that's a fascinating leap isn't it from life goal to the goal in that scene or a play 
Yeah. How do you think that's working? Well, the thing is, is I mean, everyone knows about scene objectives. It's often covered by a lot of people, commonly known as the super objective, which for me is what does the character want overall in this piece, the play or the film, right? And they kind of stop there. But the life objective is the top of the pyramid. Now, in life, we all have many motivations and desires and needs. But in plays, you're able to boil it down, or you should do, to one thing, because the piece should really be about one thing that is being dealt with, if you like. Yeah. And each character has one piece of the jigsaw, let's say. You know, for instance, death of a salesman. They all have their individual life goals that then feed into the theme of the play. Either support it or go against it in order to raise the theme of the play. But for instance, like Nina in The Seagull, you could say that her play objective is to become a successful actress or to become an artistic actress. But then you go, well, there's a greater motivation behind that. What is that? If by the end of the play, and you know, she's not successful because she's quite poor and she has a baby, but she's still an actress. She does things in the play in order to get there. But then you go, well, what does that serve? It could serve wanting to lead a creatively fulfilling life or an artistically fulfilling life. So that would then be considered as one's life goal. Yes, brilliant. Which then gets addressed in the play as, well, I'm going to fulfill that by becoming an actor. You could become a musician, you could become an artist, you could become a poet, but in her case, it's an actress. And then each scene serves that. So yeah, that was really interesting, and it was great to see someone hadn't come into contact with that kind of tool to kind of just come alive in a way. You know, he settled on his life choices as, as Raul as being living life to the fullest. Mm. And then that gives you a touchstone. Everything that you do in every scene and every moment is measured against that. It's very good. And Gary, when we first talked about this, you hadn't gotten to know the process of the West End machine, the musical machine, because, you know, the Phantom of the Opera has been around for a while. People know what to expect from a Raoul. So how much freedom does the actor have within the structure of the machine to come up with their own moments? That's a very good question. I mean, I'm not sure I know for sure, but from the bits we've discussed and things that have come out in discussion, there's certainly a desire by all concerned to put a slightly different stamp on it. Mm -hmm. But interestingly enough, we talked about today that there is this blocking that he has to adhere to. And therefore, when we were talking about, well, what's he doing in this scene? Then he's, oh, but by the way, this has to happen and this has to happen and this has to happen. And going, well, that's fine. Then his quality can then be put into that. Right. So the things that he does are defined, but how he goes about them and how he feels about them might be up to the moment. Yeah. Through new choices, he's making based on the work that we're doing. But yeah, you know, as you said, it's like the what and the how. The what for a lot of it, I would imagine, stays the same, certainly in this scene that we talked about. Mm -hmm. But the how and how it's executed and what quality he brings to, from what I remember, he was saying, you have to go over, put the champagne uh, on Christine's dressing table, go back over Mm -hmm. to the door. And it's like, well, then why don't you lean on the door? Oh, yeah, I could lean on the door. Yeah. That action has to happen, but now there's something, he's interpreting it differently. That sounds great. Yeah, I'm enjoying it a lot. I like the idea that he's tinkering with it in a way that his director may go, you know, I don't know what the hell you're doing, but it's working and you're so interesting and I'm so glad we cast you. It may just be that deepening that helps him find unique moments, like leaning on a doorway, that brings it to life in a fresh way. Yeah. It's very cool. And you know what? Even if some things are insisted upon by 
by the director. Mm-hmm. Let's say the worst case scenario, there's a lot of like, I still need it to be with this intention or as it was. What he'll still get is he'll be different internally than he was. Yes. Even if it doesn't manifest in unique, fresh behavioral choices, mm-hmm. he will still fill the choices that are insisted upon differently. Yeah. Well, just one, one more thought on that for me on this is that when you're talking about a long run of a show, theatrically, finding a way to tap into something that really resonates with you before each show, to me, it's an energy thing. It really can give you energy. If you have something to focus on before each performance that really lives in you, not just sort of, you know, vocal warm-ups and the thing, and I know what I'm going to do. And then there's a danger always of going into autopilot at a certain point when you've got it so down and, and you find yourself in the middle of a stage and you're like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do next because you're really just not necessarily fully present to it. You can get into a, a pattern, especially with musicals, where you're kind of walking through it. And I find that if you can combine a more internal awareness, then you're helping yourself to prepare for a long run and keep improving through the long run because you are staying connected and you're exploring you're just coming at it from a slightly different mindset so hopefully you're setting them up also for a more enjoyable run altogether yeah that's a really good point i mean an actor's professionalism is is to find the inspiration each night to do what you've Mm -hmm. got to do whether you Mm -hmm. whether you don't or not so yeah (laughs) Yeah. you need to find it because that's what makes you a professional that's right to be able to go on alive every night you know yes super cool This episode of the Vagabond Actors Podcast is brought to you by our friends at We Audition. Now look, we all know that auditioning in a pandemic sucks. You can't find the right partner, and if you do find the right partner, how are you going to connect with them in real time and have the read be seamless? Well, We Audition can help with that. They make it easy to find a partner and they take care of all of the technical stuff so that you can focus on what really matters, your audition and being awesome. Not only does We Audition allow you to find partners that can help you really kick ass, you can be a partner that helps other people really kick ass and get paid for it. There's other really great benefits to being a We Audition member. You can have one-on-ones with top casting directors, you can get career advice from industry professionals, and a lot more. Right now, We Audition is offering a discount on membership to Vagabond Actors listeners when you sign up with the promo code VAGABOND25. So just go to weaudition.com, click on sign up, then click on the link where it says promo code. Put VAGABOND25 in the box and you'll get 25% off your membership. Now, back to the show. So let's get to our interview and let's speak to Marcus Marku, who is from a Cypriot background, he's a British filmmaker. And what's interesting about Marcus is he's he's his own man and he's made independent movie making very unique. And it all started with his feature film, Papadopoulos and Sons. And I just want to talk to you about that, Marcus, if you don't mind. I know you've talked about it a lot. No, I didn't mind talking about that. Because Marcus speaks extensively about this self-distribution experience he's had at film industry events and film festivals because they've made a case study of it because it was such a unique, one-off, never-done-before situation. So why don't you get us into, you know, everything about Papadopoulos and Sons, which was your debut feature, right? Yeah, and, it's a, and I've deliberately set out to write a very accessible story there's often the pressure on first-time filmmakers is to break all the rules and write something that's 
kind of edgy and groundbreaking. And I'm still learning, as we all are, to had a right. And I wanted to go for something that was more classically structured. And it's a classic riches to rag story. It's a comedy. It's not an out-and-out raucous comedy. It's a gentle comedy. It's a family story. It's In structural terms, it's a situation comedy because it's about family um, who are forced to downscale. And they're a Greek family. And the only thing they've got after this huge banking crisis, there's a very rich family. They lose everything. The only thing they've got is this old fish and chip shop. And the reason the banks can't take it is because it's half owned by the crazy Greek uncle. So the kind of sterile, anglophied Greek family have to leave their mansion house and go into the fish and chip shop with the crazy Greek uncle. And that's where they learn how to live again and how to form family bonds. And father learns how to become a father and understands what the true meaning of success is. So that's the kind of the story that is Papadopoulos and Sons. And, you know, I've been to Lambda, wanted to be an actor, acted my whole life since I was a kid and was always drawn to it, taking place to Edinburgh, been to Edinburgh Festival. And I never had the guts to go to sort of drama school straight out of university. I did history and politics, real pressure on me to be a professional. So yeah, went and tried my hand at law, hated it, then found myself as a journalist and knocking about in sort of magazine circles. And then at 27, I went to Lambda, did the one-year course, and just as I was graduating, got an agent, an internet business that my family started had taken off, and they said to me, Marcus, come and help your brother run the business for six months, and then you can go do your acting thing, whatever it is that you want to do. A classic Mediterranean family response, and I get it, you know, if you come from extreme poverty, the last thing you want is your kids to then throw it all the way and become an actor uh, so, <laughs> so and I kind of stuck there I ended up really knee deep in a business startup and it was hairy and it was tough and it was grueling and I had to take a business from zero revenue to its profitable status and in order to get my creative kicks I joined an impro theater company and I started writing because I realized with impro theater I could just go for the weekend we could practice a model and I did with a guy called Chris Johnson who's written a couple of books on improv and he ran a company called Flux. And I kind of got my kicks that way. And I started writing plays. And then obviously, it took me eventually to filmmaking. So I went to film school at like 39. And I thought, well, let me just see what this is like. Loved it, made a short film, loved it. And then I said to my brother, look, I want to make a movie. Can I have some of the money that we've saved uh, in the last 10 years of building the business? And my brother said, yes, you gave up your acting career. You helped me build this successful business. Here, take some money. And that was really like so naive, really. I mean, normally what you do is you anchor your finance with other finance and you bring other parties in. And I just went off and made a film with my own money. And then once it had been made and managed to get a really good cast, Stephen Delane's in it and a French Greek actor called Georges Corafas is brilliant, is plays the kind of crazy Greek uncle, Georgia Groom, Ed Stoppard. It's had a nice British cast, but I didn't know anything about distribution. And I'd met this guy like a year before I made it, a guy called Elliot Kastner, who's this kind of larger than life Hollywood producer who came out from the independent filmmaking revolution of the 60s with Dino De Laurentiis. And he'd made some brilliant films. He made Where Eagles Dare with Clint Eastwood and Richard Byrne and made these big Hollywood movies with Brando and Nicholson. And he kind of sparked my independent film imagination. And I just thought, well, if I go make a film, I can sell them like Elliot sold them which was, you know, you, you make a really good film with your own money and then you take them to market and then someone picks the film up. But what had happened was in the 90s, 
the whole independent sales structure kind of collapsed in many ways. And unless you were getting into Sundance or one of the great festivals, and often those films that go to Sundance were packaged by agencies like William Morris and, you know, CAA and ICM, they were packaged movies. You know, they were independent, but they're packaged. So, they, you know, what the agency would package together, the actors and the director and the producers. And I was outside that. And I, I was so naive. And I just thought I would get into a good festival and something would happen. And that didn't. And I was forced to self-distribute. I mean, that's when I improvised, literally improvised the distribution plan. I didn't know really what I was doing next. I thought, well, let me stick it in cinemas. And originally I met a guy who's, they're called cinema bookers. What they do is they basically book cinemas on behalf of anybody. And often the big distribution companies will use a cinema booker. I met this legend called Martin Myers. He's a really lovely guy, passionate. And uh, he said, I can get into showcase cinemas. I said, I don't want showcase. I want a premium chain like back then it was Cineworld. And he said, no, Cineworld won't take it unless there's a really compelling argument. And so I wanted to find out what it could do at festivals. And I managed to get into the Thessalonica Film Festival. That was my first kind of break. So I got a finished film, but didn't know what to do with it. I did an industry screening and they just stitch you up, the sales agents. I mean, I've been on record as saying this at film festivals and it's made me very unpopular. But the sales agents, a lot of them are there to stitch first-time filmmakers up and they want a film for free. And maybe the environment has changed now. I know it's changed. A lot of the people I was dealing with don't work in the business anymore. But bottom line is most people never make a second film. That's the fact. And therefore, you're a first-time filmmaker, you're fair game to these people, and they want your film for very little, and they effectively want to take it, own it, and make the most of it, and then see ya. That's the nature of the game. And I got wind of that quite quickly, and I thought, well, I'm going to start talking to other people. So I started talking to YouTube and got some really interesting conversations going with YouTube about doing something different. This was before the online revolution. This was in 2012. And I was talking to the head of film at YouTube who was saying, wow, this is really interesting. What are you planning? I said, well, why don't we release it for free on YouTube and give me all your PR budget around the world to promote it? And then maybe we can have like a donation link at the end where people could just donate if they've liked it and pay that way. And the only thing stopping us doing that in the end was at the time they were using Google Wallet and I wanted PayPal and PayPal was with a rival company and they said they couldn't do it in all the territories that I wanted. I wanted it to be global. Mm. So that kind of fell through. So I was exploring all these different avenues and at the same time trying to get into Cineworld and they were saying, ah, not sure about it. And then I just, I managed to get into the Thessalonica Film Festival and then it won the Audience Award, which was a shock. I was like, wow, you don't really know whether you've made a good film until you've stuck it in front of audiences. And I, at the time I was like, is this good? I don't know. So many people have passed on it. Not many people are jumping on it. And then from Thessalonica, it went to Palm Springs and it was the favorite of Palm Springs. Then it went to Seattle. And it was having this amazing success. And then it got this crazy screening at the European Union. They'd never screened the film before in the parliament. And George Korofas, who plays Uncle Spiros, knew someone that did cultural affairs there. And they ended up screening it there and it became this big thing in the EU. And this was the crazy story. This was in the autumn of 2012. This was a film about Greeks losing money and having to decide whether they should take out a bank loan or not to start again. (laughs) And on the floor below... As we were screening this film, the Greek prime minister was negotiating Greece's bailout famously. Mm-hmm. And the Greek press were there going, what's going on up there? And they said, it's a film about Greeks 
losing money with George Korofas. Everyone in Greece knows who George Korofas is. And it created such an insane buzz that actually some of that just floated back to the UK. And we did a few press releases and, and it got to Cineworld. And Cineworld were like, wow, okay, if this film's winning audience awards, it's doing its own thing, had to go on its own little journey. And then the EU thing just capped it off. And they said, right, give us a five-page plan of what you can do. And I just gave them a five-page plan. I said, I'm just going to get the Greeks and the Cypriots to just come and see this film in your 12 sites that you give me. And there was a haggling over the sites and a little bit of luck along the way. I wanted Shaftesbury Avenue and they wouldn't give me Shaftesbury Avenue. And by chance, one of my employees at the internet company that I ran with my brother lived with the manager of the Shaftesbury Avenue <laughs> cinema. And then we got him to concoct a story that loads of people were walking into Shaftesbury Avenue going, I hear Papadopoulos and Sons is going to be on in here. And, and, <laughs> and the head office just gave us that site, but they only gave us the 200 seat screen. And I went on this crazy kind of guerrilla campaign to get the numbers in. And Martin, the cinema booker, I said, what do I need for a second week? When you put your film into a cinema, it's about getting the second week. You pay, all your money goes on the first week. Posters, marketing, PR. The second week is kind of like no cost, but money coming in. Third week, no cost, money coming in. That's why everyone's looking for that second and third and fourth week. Everyone gets you that one week opportunity, but they'll only keep your film in the cinemas if you're doing the numbers. And I said to Martin at the beginning of this whole crazy journey, what do I need for a second week? He says, you need 500 per screen, right? That's what you need. I remember that conversation very clearly in my office. I went, okay, Martin, I'll go get 500. And I thought he meant 500 people. He meant 500 pounds, but I built a plan. (laughs) 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 To get a second week. You need 500 yeah. quid per cinema. But, but, but I was building a case for 500 people. So I went all out to get 500 people per screen. You know, I contacted every Greek Orthodox church to announce the film in the Sunday service before the opening weekend. And I got a friend of mine who speaks brilliant Greek to cold call all these Orthodox priests. I was flyering these like concerts at Coco in Camden where all the Greek singers were singing. I'd had a network of Twitter and Facebook fans that were getting the message out. I contacted every Hellenic center across the country or the Greek society, university departments. I mean, every Greek restaurant, every fish and chip shop. I mean, the, it was just guerrilla marketing for about a couple of months like that. And then in our opening weekend, lo and behold, we ended up with the second high screen average, only beaten by Tom Cruise's Oblivion. I mean, we were only in 12 cinemas, but there was only one film that had a bigger screen average than us. Hmm. And that was Tom Cruise's Oblivion because the word had got out. The Greeks came in their force and it went crazy. They were like, I started off in the 200 seat screen in Shaftesbury Avenue, which they didn't give me. And it, the phone lines went live. It's not like theatre where you can pre-book months in advance, which gives theatre producers a real advantage. That's why this the crazy PR is just that week before, because you can only really pre-book a couple of days before. That's it. And so the phone lines were kind of opened like two days before the Thursday, which is the opening weekend is really Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And Cineworld's phone lines melted down and they were like, your 200 seat screen at Shaftesbury Avenue sold for the whole weekend within 10 minutes. 
So we've put you into a bigger screen. That sold out. And then they put me in the 500-seat screen, this massive <laughs> cinema on Shaftesbury Avenue that was never filled. And that sold. And they were going, what is going on? And on the night of the weekend we opened, the guy that I was gathering Greeks in Cardiff, there's a big community of Greeks in Cardiff, tweeted me to say that the Cardiff Greek Orthodox priest was there that night in a packed cine world in Cardiff, <laughs> blessing the opening credits with a massive extra large popcorn in his hand. <laughs> and then I knew, I knew we were onto something. In Brighton, they were Greek dancing in the aisles. You know, all these stories started flooding in. And I just thought, oh God, we've done it. And it was then that Martin, in some cinemas, I was under 500 and I was panicking. I was like, ah, uh, you know, in Liverpool, we did terribly. I mean, it was our worst performing cinema. But in some cinemas, we were only like three or 400. And he said, what are you on about? I said, I, I, I didn't get my, in some cinemas, it looks like I haven't got the 500 quota. He said, of course you have. You've, got, you've done like seven grand here and six grand there. And, <laughs> and, and I said, I thought you said it's, it's 500 people. He went, no, 500 pounds. 500 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we got our second week, our third week. We then, they then rang me and said, where do you want to go next? Cineworld were like, where do you want to go? I said, okay, go to Sheffield, go here, go here. Like in places like Enfield and Wood Green, where there's big Greek communities, it was running in three or four screens in both those cinemas wow. throughout the day. You know, I get emotional when I think about it because I was running around just taking photos of the queues and thinking, <laughs> How have I done this? This was a film that was resoundingly rejected by the industry, told it wasn't commercial. I had meetings where sales agents would tell me that this was not a good film, that this would need to be edited mm. severely, that actually you'd be lucky if we took this on for free. They bully you, they do. And here I was by myself, just alone, without any help. Okay, I had employees helping and pulling in favours here, there. But by and large, I was carrying this whole thing on my shoulders and having really dark moments in, in this journey. I remember once when after the screening to the industry and they resoundingly just said, no, we're not interested. Going around like an idiot, posting DVDs of my film to like Fox Searchlight and Paramount and Universal. And I remember a friend of mine an actress uh, ringing me and going, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm getting the film. And she says, why are you doing that? I said, because, you know, I spent a lot of money. I want to get it out. And I think she said something quite profound at that moment. She said, why did you do it, Marcus? Why did you make this film? And it's the thing I said to the actors when I said to Stephen Delane, said, why are you making this film? I said, because I want my kids to see something about me who I was, who I am. I want to pass that on because my kids don't have their Greek roots and I never did any of that and I wanted to make this to show my kids. And she said, that should be enough, Marcus. And I got really angry with her on the phone and I said, <laughs> how, can you, how can you say that should be enough? I've spent so much money. <laughs> and I was justifying why I was doing this like with anger. And I remember going to the office, just going into the basement loo and just crying my eyes out for like Aww. a good hour. So then to go from that to just seeing all these people queuing up for the film just felt magical. I was just going to ask because so many directors have that as a dream. So what skills did you think you drew on to turn it around like that? I think because I'd run an internet business mm -hmm. with my brother and I come from a very entrepreneurial family. My dad's an accountant. It was the first Greek accountant in Birmingham. That should be the title of your next film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. First Greek <laughs> and he came from extreme poverty, my dad. Like he came from the villages in Cyprus. It wasn't even mm -hmm. working class. It was village class. There is a village class. Mm -hmm. My grandparents, my grandfather who died last year, they didn't even mm -hmm. read or write their own language. So my father grew up in this very, very tough environment. And so when he came to Britain and became qualified, 
outsiders in accounting that had a real flair for accountancy and built up a practice overnight with a thousand clients at the age of 27. And it was always business being discussed Mm -hmm. at the house. That was always the conversation, how to make money, how to make money, how to make money. Everything was a good Mm -hmm. idea and everything was geared around what could be possible in business. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in that environment. And then I ran my, like, I was always entrepreneurial. When I went to university, I launched my own magazine. I took my own plays up to Edinburgh. I had that entrepreneurial in the blood. You know, we grew up in a startup culture. Everything was, mm-hmm. you know, you start a business, it was crap, it failed, it doesn't matter, next one. And that's how we operated. And I embraced that. And also I'd been running an internet business with my brother. And I had to understand how finance worked, how marketing worked, you know, how sales strategy worked. So I had all of those skills as well as passionate actor, passionate about theatre. I went to a school where we did Brecht, Pinter, obviously Shakespeare, mm. Arthur Miller. And so I just married that my passion for art and acting and theatre and, and storytelling with a passion for business. Mm-hmm. As I get older, I realise it's rare to have a foot in both camps because one camp doesn't like the other camp. Art doesn't like business and business doesn't like art at some level. But I was always passionate about both for the right reasons, I think, which I think was part of the skill set that helped make my film a success distributing. Mm -hmm. I explored every angle. I just explored every angle. You know, I tweeted every fish and chip shop owner on Twitter. You know, I wrote to every Greek restaurant and I sent them packs of posters that they could put in their windows. I had a friend walk up one high street and we're green and he phoned me to say, all I see is your Papadopoulos and Sons posters in every window. It's just just like, you know, if you've got enough energy and passion, you'll explore every avenue, won't you? If you believe in it, it doesn't matter what it is. Like, you know, if you're passionate and you believe in your film, you'll do that. I think the reason a lot of directors or producers don't do that is that maybe it's at the, in their heart. It's like, do I really believe in this film? I was willing to go the extra mile because I passionately believed it was something that audiences needed to hear because we'd just been through a financial crisis. And in Cyprus, people had lost all their money because the, mm-hmm. they, the EU just swiped their bank accounts, you know. And I still get messages from people who've seen that film to say, I've lost everything. I lost my business. I lost... I lost our livelihood and me and my kids watched your film and just want to say thank you. It's just given us hope, you know. So would you go that extra mile for a zombie film or a gangster movie? No, you wouldn't. Yeah, it comes out of the heart, right? Yeah, if you're making something from the heart, then why wouldn't you absolutely make a fool of yourself and go and stand? I mean, I was handing out flies in Cineworld Wandsworth you know, passionately mm-hmm. like like John the Baptist going, come and see this film, come and see this film, mm-hmm. come and see this film. Mm-hmm. And no shame or no embarrassment because I believed in the film. Great stuff. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about the trailer, actually. I think your trailer is really awesome. And I know there are some firms that specifically edit trailers. Did you edit your own or did you hire somebody to edit it? No, I used the editor of the film. The editor was a guy called Sebastian Morrison, who he'd edited my very first short film, which I'd made at film school. Mm-hmm. And it was a logical choice to use Seb. He's an accomplished editor and will edit like those reality TV shows where effectively the editor gets so much material and then you've got to condense it into what you as the editor believe is the story. So he's a really accomplished editor. And he did my trailer for Papadopoulos and Sons. Mm-hmm. And he whacked on Florence and the Machines yeah. song 
song. And then one day the trailer came down and I got an email from Universal Music saying, you don't have permission for this. And by chance, Georgia Groom was at my office, who's an actress in the movie. And she said, how's it going? I said, really good. But they've Universal just taken down the trailer. And she said, why? I said, because of course I've got a Florence and the Machine song and I, I don't have permission for it. And she said, oh, I, I know it through a mutual friend. Let me ask her. But then I went on the craziest wild goose chase to get her to give me permission because Georgia then asked Florence and she said, yeah, it's fine. But when I was emailing Universal, I was going, look, my friend Georgia knows Florence and she says it's fine. So can you put it back on? So then I had to find her directly. But eventually I put a DVD through her door and I put a letter saying, look, I'm Georgia's friend. She's asked you permission. Please tell your people to switch it back on. And with next day came back on. Oh, I mean, I, that was naivety in the extreme to whack on a Florence mm. and the Machine song. Oh, it's so funny because the minute I heard the song, I was like, oh my God, how did he get rights to that song? That's a great story. Through her own kindness in the end and generosity. Yeah. Marcus, can you talk to us about your casting process? I really liked the idea of Mark Strong to play the lead. And he was involved with a big Hollywood production and it just wasn't going to happen. And Angie Carroll, who was casting, said, look, I was at drama school with Steve. Stephen Delane, I was at Bristol Old Vic with Stephen. Shall I throw him the script? And I, I mean, Stephen's an incredible actor, but he was, he was never on my list. But I'd seen him in The Real Thing. You know, he's a remarkable actor. And I thought, well, he's such a good actor. You cannot say no. I said, yeah, send him the script. But he was committed to Game of Thrones. It was like, yeah, he really likes the script, but it, it looks like he won't be able to do it because he's shooting Game of Thrones. And I was like, okay, n- not a problem. But in that gap between sending him the screenplay and finding out that Game of Thrones shooting schedule was, ran over hours, I'd been researching him avidly on the internet. You know, I was kind of feeling insecure that he may not have been Greek. And I think, okay, well, that means Uncle Spiros has to be a Greek. And in that process, I'd seen his son, uh, Frank Delane, who looked very Mediterranean. And Stephen rang me one night and said, you know, we just have to wait. Game of Thrones is still firming up their schedule. It's not looking lightly. I really like your script. We'd like to jump in, but it doesn't look like we will. But let's just see what happens. And on that call, I said, I've just noticed you've got a son called Frank and he looks quite Greek. I said, where is he? He goes, oh, he's studying at Radis his last year. He'd have to get special permission. I said, well, can I just see him anyway? Because he looks interesting. And obviously Frank came in and he's done a small part in Harry Potter, played the young Voldemort. But he was brilliant in the casting really good Mm -hmm. and I thought oh my god he's really good offer him the part (laughs) and then suddenly Stephen was like oh my god my son's gonna be in this film I now want to be in this movie so he got Game of Thrones to move their shooting schedule so he could basically be with his son and they had the most wonderful time and those scenes because they play father and son in the film are so touching and authentic and of course you know as a director that if Mm -hmm. you've got father and son right you know they're going to be working on that at Mm -hmm. home and they brought that energy to the movie father and son they were at the center of this family production and it was lovely it was truly lovely And then the other parts, George, I desperately wanted because he was a a really good Greek actor. And I just knew he was Uncle Spiros. And he was a bit like, I don't know you. Come and meet me in Paris. And he was very noncommittal. But once we met, once he saw my passion, he would go, oh, 
doughy eyed and I'm like, okay, I've got this guy now. He loves me. He's going to do it. And his agent was so against it. And George phoned me after and said, I want you to be the first to know I fired my agent. I was like, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, and then the others, we just put out a casting call and we got people in. We did the conventional casting process, but I wanted to do it a bit differently. I got rid of the desk. You know, I don't really need to hear an actor read sometimes it's just I, you know for me it's just sitting down and having a conversation with them and getting to mm-hmm. know them for me is more important than reading sides i think although sometimes you can find the, the magical moment when they read those sides and they give you something you never even imagined and you think mm-hmm. wow they've taken the copy and they've added something that even i as the writer didn't envisage they've gone above and beyond and found something mm-hmm. that happened with cesare who plays mehmet and i just thought wow this guy is just brilliant so it was a conventional casting process but the first 10 minutes with the actor was a conversation rather than just read your sides and go because i hate that and i wanted every actor to feel that they were enjoying the casting and that they were getting something out of it and that Mm. they were relaxed and they were felt free to play because i'd been on the other side you know leaving lambda and just going to these God awful soulless casting meetings with these God awful people. So I just wanted it to be the opposite of that experience Mm -hmm. for for everybody that came in. So is there something as a director, not necessarily with Papadopoulos and Sons, but generally as a director with other projects, in an audition, is there anything specific that you do in order to elicit something from an actor? Look, even in this podcast, you know how open I've been quickly. That's me. You know me, Gary. I'm instantly open. And what I'm looking for is for actors to spill their guts as well in that meeting, as much as they can or, or willing to. I will spill my guts first. As a writer director, in rehearsal, I'm the first person to talk about my breakdowns or I'm the first person to talk about things that I wanted in my life that never went well or I'll go wherever I can go in order to open myself up emotionally because we're creating emotions, aren't we, as, as actors? So when I meet actors, I just want them to feel comfortable with me. I firstly want to show them that they won't be judged. I want them to feel totally at ease because I know that is what is going to allow the actor to open up. And that's what we want to see. And do you do anything to facilitate that? Is the chat it? It's trying to get rid of these kind of conventional professional barriers when I was on the other side of the table. Every now and again, you just meet someone and they'd just be honest and open. And I, me- I remember meeting a director called David Jury. He made a couple of Hollywood movies and he made some TV. And I went as an actor for a, a job. And I remember he said, put the sides away, let's just talk. And we just talked about what we liked on TV, what we didn't like on TV. And we talked about family. And, we- and I do remember thinking, if I ever directed, that's the kind of conversation that I'd want with actors. It's no different to what you were saying earlier, Gary, about what's the big life objective is very interesting because I think what that does it frees the actor to open up everything because it's like we're going beyond that kind of conventional professional Nat West opening a bank account meeting into something bigger which is who am I what am I what do I want in this world and therefore once I've opened myself up in that way to the big things then I'm free now to explore this character's wants and needs in that Mm -hmm. open way so all I'm doing is intuitively picking up hopefully in that first conversation whether this actor is willing to open up actors generally they relax because they see that I'm prepared to make a fool of myself first and therefore I'm not putting myself on a pedestal you know for me the 
director serves the actors. That's what I do on the film set. You know, on Papadopoulos and Sons, there were 17 actors and 17 different ways that they were working. Some actors like to work from the outside in and they would take a line reading. Like, just give me the line reading, Marcus. Stop giving, <laughs> stop giving me the larbin. This is just, just how do you want it said? And I would just give the line reading, like, in a whisper, and they go, perfect. And obviously, someone like Stephen will only work from the inside out. You know, it's a different process with every actor. And I think as a film director, you've got to know how each actor works. And you serve each one of those actors differently. That's what I think anyway. Yeah, well, your experience and training as an actor has helped you there because there's a lot of directors who (laughs) those words would not come out of their mouth. I'm here to serve the actor. I guess what I'm doing is so kind of cottage industry. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It's a completely different process in that respect. You know, the goal for me is to try and create things that feel unique, whether they're the story or the way it's shot or the performances. I'm just trying to go for something that's going to hang around for a little bit longer. That's my goal. And I think I've done that with Papadopoulos and Sons because it's going to be basically on BBC iPlayer for a decade. Now, when you consider that was a film that was made in 2011 and then didn't get it out till 2013, it's nearly two decades of being around. So mm-hmm. my goal is always to try and create longevity because I don't want it to be disposable in any way. Marcus, along those lines of longevity and themes that resonate and have some universal qualities, I really enjoyed the short that you made, Two Strangers Who Meet Five Times. Yes. It's a lovely film. Maybe you can talk to our audience a little bit about the content, the idea behind the film. And and uh, there's a certain timeliness, I think, in the presentation of it. But maybe you can give us a sense of just quickly what it is and how you came upon the idea and what your experience was as it's been very successful on the festival front. Yeah. And weirdly, in April, it just took off It just mm-hmm. it, on, on YouTube. In February, it did 700 views. And in April, it did 330,000 views. Wow. And there's a mystery at the heart of this story, but it's gone viral suddenly. And it did really well at festivals. It did like 60 festivals. It won loads of awards, won lots of audience awards at some very cool festivals. It's like a parable. It's a very short film. It's 12 minutes. So it's short, even by short film standards. And it's the span of two people's lives on the five times that they've met. So we only see those moments where they meet over the span of their entire lives. And it was really inspired by one of my colleagues who'd suffered racist abuse outside a tube station in London. And he described it when he got into work. And I was, oh, I'm so, I was like, what, you know, you're like, oh, there's nothing you can say. You know, you, your instinct is to try and say something to make it better, but that's in a way that is insulting. And I said, God, what if this person that's completely destroyed you outside a tube station with the most horrific racial abuse, what if you then met this person again in an interview? That's what I said to my colleague. Mm-hmm. And I took that idea and went, okay, well, what does that mean if I was to make a short film out of this? And that's where the genesis of that story came. Mm-hmm. And I just kept on going, what if, what if? What if, what if they kept meeting? And when was the very first meeting? So I played around with the order of these meetings in the film. Mm-hmm. And I toned down the racism to make it more of that sort of everyday, at the till, sort of mm-hmm. snidey, which we were kind of seeing in Britain post-Brexit, post-Trump, that kind of like, so when are you going back? That kind of low-level I wouldn't say ideological racism, but that kind of ingrained, socially conditioned 
sort of racism, that he's fine to say something like that to another person. And that was the kind of starting point. And it's a really sweet film. And for some reason, it gets played a lot at schools. So I'm doing two Zooms next week, one with a class in Denmark and one in Maine as a result of this film that they've played to their class. And so for me, that again is really... It's really special. It's like, Mm -hmm. that's what I want to do. I want to tell those stories that have a sense of longevity. Yeah, I'm very happy with how it's suddenly blown up on YouTube, for sure. People are watching it, they're crying, and they're they're posting about it. And you're like, wow, that's that's gold. That's where you want to be as a storyteller, isn't it? And if you go to YouTube and type two strangers who meet five times, you'll find the short there. The casting in particular of the older actors in one of the scenes was really lovely. Well done there. I thought you captured something really nicely and their performances were just great. Well, sadly, Alistair Cameron, who played the English character, passed Mm -hmm. away last year. The Arabic character was played by a Greek actor, called Dimitri Andreas. Now, the brilliant thing about Dimitri was he was in Arnold Wesker's original 1958 Royal Court production of The Kitchen. He was 16. And I tried to get him for Papadopoulos and Sons, actually. And he said, I only want to play Spiros. And I said, well, that's going to George Koropas. And so when I reached out to him with this screenplay, he rang me straight away and said, I'll do it. And he doesn't say, I mean, you'll see it. He doesn't say a word in the film not a word i had one I had like a sentence uh, mm-hmm. for him and he cut it out himself said i'm not going to speak it mm-hmm. and i just put the camera on me and i and i'll uh i'll smile and i said are you sure about that he goes yeah because i know i know it's the mm-hmm. thing that everyone's going to remember yes yes <laughs> that moment is so powerful he knew what he was doing. Yeah. And when actors can bring stuff like that on set, when they can suggest a cut or when they can suggest an added line or they can suggest stuff like that, it's gold for mm-hmm. us as filmmakers, you know, because it was, Demi- it was Dimitri's idea to cut the line and it's so powerful as a result of that. Marcus, I want to ask you about your producing partner, Sarah Butler. I noticed she produces some or all of the films that you've done. The last short film I did was with Mirren. Sarah Butler. Butler's a really good line producer. So she'd worked on things like the kind of staple TV shows as a production manager and line producer. Mm-hmm. Worked for the BBC, ITV, and all those like well-known TV shows. And, you know, the heart of filmmaking is a budget and a schedule. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. everything falls out of the budget and the schedule. Everything, mm-hmm. every hire, every day shooting, every cost. It's the heart and soul of a film or TV show. And so Sarah, being a line producer, understood the budget and schedule, which is Mm. what makes something work. Mm -hmm. Do you think that eventually you might, in terms of a production company, develop scripts that other people write that you would direct or that you would facilitate other writer-directors with the know-how and the drive that you have in terms of a producer? I would never direct another person's work because there are better directors that can do that. There's certain directors that come on to TV and they add something and they're mm-hmm. really earning their money, right, those guys? Yeah. I'm no way one of those guys. However, one thing that I might be interested in is mentoring younger filmmakers as a producer in their first short film or their first feature film. That really excites me. And, you know, I wrote a Syrian refugee story that's set in the north of England that had an amazing cast attached. I got some really great actors and I thought at 1.5 million, this is going to be a sell because I've got some really big names attached. 
but it's such a kind of hot topic. It was exploring English nationalism. It was basically the feature film version of Two Strangers Who Meet Five Times. And I thought to get this made, would I give up the directing bit and get a name director, maybe an actor who would be their debut feature? And the mm. answer to that is, yeah, 100% with the right actor who could bring a certain artistry to the project, then it would be an absolute honor to produce a director's first time feature if it's something mm-hmm. that I'd written because it's important that the story gets made and it's important right. that that story is seen and I wasn't the director that was going to raise the money but a famous actor who can bring the artistry and a name that could also bring in the finance that's what I'm saying I'm happy to take my ego out of the equation it has to be someone that could bring a certain artistry that is embodied in their acting work as well if that makes sense mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. We could continue and continue and continue because there's... We can't. I have a 6.45 pickup tomorrow morning. Yeah. So let's segue neatly onto our third part of the podcast where we offer up top tips. I'm still watching Ozark and I'm still very much enjoying it. Every so often there's some storyline bits that I raise my eyebrow about. But I really like the performances very much, and I find it very compelling. So I'm still recommending that. And then, you know, I think I've mentioned that I kind of keep this running note of movies that I want to watch with my daughter. And when Olympia Dukakis passed away this past week, I realized that, like, at least five of the films on my list have her in the cast, like... Mr. Holland's Opus is on my list, and uh, Steel Magnolias, and Working Girl, and Moonstruck. There's a bunch of movies that I've wanted to show her, and they're all featuring her. And so I would just say, take a look at her filmography. She had just a fabulous career and life and pick something beautiful and watch it and enjoy really a masterful performer because she she made every role her own uniquely her own and I'm just happy when I watch her perform I don't know there's something gritty and real and honest and present about her that is very very special so take a look of course Moonstruck was one of her most you know awarded and lauded performances and it's always worthwhile. But take a look at the breadth of her work and pick something nice. That's my recommendation. Good one. Nice recommendation. Nice. Brian? I've been taking a lot of walks through Belgrade. And on one of them, I was listening to Ramdas Here and Now, which is a podcast where they play a lot of Ramdas's lectures about spirituality and about mindfulness and about his spiritual practice. And I've found it very enlightening and very um, comforting in a way. It really puts me on a good path, I think, to listen to him talk about his spiritual practice and talk about life and, and the journey that we're all on through that lens that he has. So I would recommend listening to Ramdas here and now as a podcast, but you can also, a lot of his lectures are on YouTube. And of course, the book Be Here Now is a really amazing book. So I, I would recommend Ramdas. I know I've mentioned it before, but I'm just, you know, being here in this place. You got to just be in the present yeah. kind of place. So, Marcus, would you like to share a top tip? Well, I was going to suggest 
directing actors by Judith Weston, because I'm reading it now and I read it before I make a film and it is a brilliant book. But I've been inspired by Brian's choice to be here now. I'm going to say The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. I don't know if any of you have read it. It is an incredibly beautiful book because it really is about that idea of stillness, presence and balance. Mm. And it's it's about dealing with the inner voice. Mm. He basically takes that voice in your head and says it's not you. And it's an incredibly beautiful book. And I thoroughly recommend it. There you go. That's my tip. Mm. Very good. Yeah, Les, we got a little spiritual heart to the top. <laughs> uh, what about you, Gay? What about <laughs> me? Okay, well, I'm going to go for a book, actually, and it's Paul Auster's New York Trilogy, which I bought years ago and I've been meaning to read and never have, and I've started to dip into it. And he's a fantastic writer, an astonishing writer, actually. It's a really gripping piece of work, and it's really three clever interconnected novels in the style of a detective fiction, which is reminiscent of, of a Raymond Chandler. But it's very sort of existential. Each story explores these remarkable coincidences and happenstances, which these coincidences it starts a gripping investigation over three different novels at different time space interfaces and just explores what it means to be human the writing is very spare and because it's very spare it sparks the imagination so New York Trilogy by Paul Auster, who incidentally just hit me, actually, and maybe one of you guys will be able to help me out. He Did he do... Smoke. That's it. He wrote the screenplay for Smoke. It was the original story, and it's an amazing film, Smoke. It's yeah. like one of my favourites. Yeah. He's a very New York-centric writer, Paul Auster, isn't he? Yeah. So that maybe that's another one, is uh, a film with Harvey Keitel called Smoke. Yeah. And Jim Jarmusch is in it, if I remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there you go. Two for one. <laughs> wow. Cool. Marcus, Yes. how can people get in touch with you? I'm on Twitter. I'll follow anyone that follows me as a result of this podcast. I'll follow him back. And we'll <laughs> okay. that. So what's your, what's your Twitter handle, Marcus? At Marcus Marku, M-A-R-C-U-S, M-A-R-K-O-U. That's my Twitter. You just need to say, I heard you on the Vagabond podcast, and I'll follow you back and we'll interact. And he will, because he is uh, a king of Twitter. That's right. I'm following you. I'm following. I'm going to hound you about your new your new film project. I'm going to watch everything going on about this film project. Gary, what about you? How can people get in touch with you? Yeah, social media, at Gary Condes for all Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, all the same, at Gary Condes. Or, you know, have a look at my website and drop me a message via my contact page. It'd be, it'd be great to hear from you that way. I'm a bit old school. There you go. And that's GaryCondes.com. And oh, what you about you? Yeah. You need to know That's what okay. my website is. <laughs> yeah, I got it. I got you. I got you back. Good man. Thank you. And Andrea, how about you? How can people get in touch with you if they want to? If they want to interact with me, oh, they can find me on Instagram at Andrea Helene three, and I am on Twitter at Andrea underscore Helene. Great, and I am at Brian Casp on Twitter and Instagram, and I have a Facebook page. And let's see, the latest things that I've been posting on Instagram are shadows of my crazy hair. Every job I get on, I'm like, can we cut my hair? And they say, no, we like your hair the way it is, but I think it's too long. So that's what awaits you on Instagram. And if you want to get in touch with Vagabond Actors, it's at Vagabond Actors on Twitter and on Instagram and on our Facebook page. And let us know if you have a project that you're working on. We'd like to hear from you. If you have questions about something that's going on in your career or your craft, 
So get in touch and let us know. And in the meantime, until next week, we want you to stay creative and stay safe. So we'll talk to you later. Thank you very much, Marcus, for dropping by and for talking so wonderfully about your projects and your process. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Yeah, pleasure having you on, Marcus. Appreciate the time. Such a treat. Thank you for your time and your spirit. It's an absolute pleasure.